T.S. Eliot wrote, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. Is he right? How will the world end? Well, many civilizations have answered this question differently. And one group that had very strong expectations about how the world would end were the Jews living under Roman occupation some 2,000 years ago. They believed that the end would come with the arrival of the kingdom of God. And they believed that when God's kingdom came, God would unleash his omnipotent power to dramatically intervene in the world, to bring destruction to their enemies. That, as we read earlier from Zephaniah 1, the Lord would utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth in a day of wrath, a day of ruin and devastation. And in the wake of all of this, God would grant Israel peace and bliss under the reign of her Messiah. And that is how history would end. Not with a whimper, but with a bang. However, today as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to find that Jesus has some surprising things to say about the coming of the kingdom of God. Unlike what first century Jews expected, Jesus is going to say that, in fact, God's kingdom dawns not with a bang, not with a supernatural moment of violent cataclysm. Rather, its beginnings are far humbler and quieter. Its composition and nature is far more complex, and its outworking unfolds over time and not in one devastating instant. And yet, while the kingdom may begin quietly, it won't end that way, for indeed, all things will finally culminate in a climactic bang. There will be judgment for the impenitent, and there will be salvation, not for ethnic Jews, but rather for all who trust in Christ. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue studying the parables that we find in Matthew chapter 13. Today, we're going to be in verses 24 through 43, and in these verses, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. Second, we're going to see a parable that teaches us about the surprising composition of the kingdom of God. And third, we're going to see two parables that teach us about the surprising growth of the kingdom of God. So if you've got a Bible, look with me at Matthew 13. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are in this book. Jesus has been ministering in Galilee for many chapters now, and he has been preaching and he has been performing the most amazing miracles. He has clearly demonstrated that he is the Messiah, and yet Israel's religious leaders have already rejected him. So too have the vast majority of the common people in Galilee. Oh, they were content to receive Jesus' supernatural powers, but they will not obey his call to repent. They will not receive him as their Lord and King. And Matthew 13 begins right on the heels of a number of these incidents in which Jesus is rejected. And the chapter begins, you might remember from last week, with Jesus leaving the house where a lot of these terrible incidents took place, and he heads down to the Sea of Galilee. And again, the crowds follow him. And they surround Jesus, and they press in upon him so much so that some folks have to bring a boat out and get Jesus on the boat so that he's not crushed by these crowds. 
And from that boat offshore, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds that are assembled on shore. But the sermon that Jesus gives the crowds is very different than the kinds of messages he had been giving them previously. When Jesus spoke in front of the crowds before, he spoke in a very clear way. And you might remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that caused the crowds to marvel at Jesus' immense wisdom. But now Jesus does not speak to the crowds in a clear way. Rather, he speaks to them in parables. That is, he told them stories that had a spiritual meaning which is not immediately obvious. Now, if the story's meaning was explained, then indeed the story would reveal a profound truth. But Jesus did not explain his parables to the crowds. He told the crowds the stories, but he told his disciples the explanation. And we saw last week that this meant that the parables basically served two functions. First, the parables functioned as a judgment upon the unbelieving crowds. It confused them and shut them out from the truth to hear Jesus speaking in these stories that he didn't explain to them. He was confirming them in their terrible unbelief that they had been in through the whole book of Matthew so far. He was confirming them under God's judgment. But the parables also functioned as a powerful means of revealing the truth to Jesus' disciples. Because they were able to understand what Jesus was saying in these parables. Because not only did Jesus tell them what they meant, but as Jesus said in last week's passage, they also had received spiritual insight from God. This is where we pick up today. Now as we begin, what I want to do is start by summarizing the action of the first two-thirds of this chapter. Just so that we have a very clear idea of how this is going to progress. From the boat... Jesus gives the crowd four parables. We looked at the first of them last week, the parable of the sower. We're going to look at the other three today. And once Jesus finishes telling these parables to the crowds, he's going to withdraw from the crowds back into the house where he started the chapter. And there he's going to have a chat with the disciples. Now, last week we saw that the first part of his conversation with the disciples consisted of him explaining to them why he was teaching in parables, which we just talked about. And he gave them the explanation of the parable of the sower. And today we're going to see he explains just one more of these four parables to the disciples during this conversation. So today we're going to see three parables and one explanation. But before we look at any of that, I want to start by looking at just a brief comment that Matthew drops right in the middle of this chapter, which explains yet another reason why Jesus spoke in parables. So this is our first point today. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Part two. Look at chapter 13, verse 34. Matthew says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. So what he's saying is that Jesus' entire sermon from the boat consisted of parables. Then Matthew continues, indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. Now this is not clear in English, but in the Greek, Matthew's using a different verbal tense here for this verb to say. And what this new tense that he shifted into does is it has the force of ongoing action. So Matthew here isn't just talking about that sermon now. He's now going to make a broader comment that going forward, Jesus' regular interaction with the crowds is going to be just like this sermon. It's going to be dominated by parables, not by clear teaching. And why is that? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 35, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. 
I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. One of the great themes in this book is that Jesus is the fulfillment and the culmination of the Old Testament. Jesus does not only fulfill the very clear messianic prophecies that predict his life and death and resurrection, which are scattered throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Now, certainly Jesus does fulfill them, but he fulfills more than that. He fulfills the whole Old Testament, we read in chapter 5. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew eleven thirteen, all the prophets and the law prophesied. The whole Old Testament in various ways points to him. And now, once more, Matthew tells us Jesus is doing something that fulfills some aspect of the Old Testament as he connects Jesus' use of parables to Psalm 78, verse 2. Now, if you look at Psalm 78, what you'll notice is that initially it does not seem to be a messianic prophecy. It just seems to be an ordinary psalm written by a man named Asaph who was famous for writing songs in worship to God. But Asaph was also, according to 1 Chronicles 25 and 2 Chronicles 29, a prophet. And Asaph, in this psalm, gives a prophetic message, basically recounting the history of Israel. Now, the psalm begins like this, Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. This is the purpose statement of this psalm. And Asaph says that this psalm's purpose is to teach future generations of Israelites about great deeds that God has done in the past. And in the middle of this, Asaph says he's going to open his mouth in a parable. Now, how does Psalm 78 constitute a parable? Because in this psalm, Asaph's going to tell a story. A story that, if it's rightly understood, is going to teach a profound spiritual truth. It's going to reveal the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of man. And the story Asaph uses to relate this truth is the history of Israel. Now, this is a little different than Jesus' parables because Jesus carefully constructed stories that precisely conveyed the truths he wanted to communicate. Asaph didn't do that. He didn't build a story of his own. He just pointed to some stories from the past. But both Jesus and Asaph are using stories that, when fully explained, reveal spiritual realities. And because of this similarity, Matthew sees another prophetic connection. Now, this is not a direct messianic prophecy. Asaph is not saying, I'm going to tell a parable and in a few centuries the Messiah is going to do that too. He doesn't say that. He just says, I'm going to tell a parable. And yet remember what we just said. The entire Old Testament anticipates, it points to Jesus. So what Matthew tells us here is that just like earlier in this book, when we saw that there were great parallels between the history of Israel and events in Jesus' life, and that told us that Jesus' life was pointed to by the history of Israel, that Jesus is the new and better Israel. Now we're invited to see Jesus as the new and better Asaph. Asaph used stories to communicate spiritual truths. 
Jesus does the same thing. But the truths that Jesus reveals are far greater than what Asaph revealed. So, Jesus speaks in parables not only to judge the crowds, not only to educate his disciples, he also speaks in parables to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, here's what I want you to take from this first point. The Bible, including the whole Old Testament, points to Jesus. There is a tendency in our time among Christians to minimize or ignore the Old Testament. But friends, that is wrong. We need the Old Testament because it powerfully speaks to us about Jesus. And this is something I really want to impress on you today. If you've come here many times in the past, I hope one thing you see in this church is that we love God's Word and we take God's Word seriously and we study it closely. We want to understand it as well as we can. But friends, at the end of the day, we've got to remember that the Bible is only a tool. Biblical knowledge is not the purpose of our spiritual pursuit. It is the means that God has given us to seek Jesus. And all of our teaching. And all of our knowledge is worthless ultimately if at the end of the day we have not seen in the pages of the scripture who God is and what God has done in and because of Jesus. And if our knowledge does not stir us up to love Jesus more and to want to serve him better, then we need to remember Jesus' warning in John 5 to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, it's a tragedy if we spend years sitting under God's word and thinking about the Bible and reading the Bible and hearing the Bible. And yet at the end of the day, we ultimately still refuse to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the crowds in Galilee did. They heard Jesus over and over again. They saw the miracles, and yet they would not believe. And friends, there are churches filled this morning with people who are on this same path. What did Jesus say earlier in this chapter, in chapter 13, verse 12? From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. To fail to love and worship Jesus is to be in the place of catastrophic judgment. No, friends, we need to have spiritual insight to recognize that the whole Bible is about Jesus and it all calls us to love and worship Jesus. And if we do that, then verse 12 of this chapter says to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. So we always need to remember when we come to the scriptures, that we come to seek Jesus and to love and serve him more. But we come now to our second point, and let's now get into one of Jesus' parables. And in it, we're going to see that the kingdom of God has a surprising composition. Let's go back to the start of our passage. Jesus is sitting in the boat. He's just finished telling the parable of the sower, and now he continues. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now, this second parable also comes from the world of agriculture, just like the parable of the sower did. And like that first parable, this one also has a farmer sowing, and it's got seed, and it's got a field. So there are some common elements here. 
But this second parable is not simply a continuation of the first. Because Jesus is going to say in just a minute that some of these elements have a different symbolic meaning in the second parable than they had in the first. So while there are some commonalities with the parable of the sower, ultimately this second parable is a different story and it goes in a different direction. So we have a farmer who has sowed some good seed in his soil. Verse 25 But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Now the story develops and we learn some important things. First, our farmer's running a big operation. He's got some servants. He is the master of a large estate. Second, this master has an enemy who wants to disrupt the master's operation. And this enemy creeps about in darkness, performing an act of sabotage. He tries to destroy the master's wheat crop by sowing an alien type of seed among the good plants. And this alien seed is not going to blossom into edible wheat. It's going to sprout weeds. Now that's the scenario. The master's wheat field is adulterated by the weeds. What happens? Well, some time passes, and eventually the seeds sprout and begin to blossom. Verse 26, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? So the master's servants are out in the fields and they see that these weeds have come up and they're confused. Where did they come from? Didn't the master check the quality of the seed? You know, you could see the the thoughts running through their mind. And so they, they go back and they ask the master. In verse 28, the master says to them, an enemy has done this. The master detects the wicked hand of his adversary. Now, the master's servants are quite loyal, and they offer to immediately intervene. Verse 28, so the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them, that is to uproot the weeds and get rid of them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The master does not want his servants to take this situation into their own hands. Rather, he wants them to be patient, because the master knows that if he tells the servants to pull the weeds up right away, they're going to necessarily uproot some of the wheat with the weeds. It's going to damage the crop. Now, This statement that the master gives them, not to to act immediately and to wait, has led to a lot of confusion over the years. Because many people reading this have come to the conclusion that what the master is concerned about here is mistaken identity. That the real problem is that the weeds look virtually indistinguishable from the wheat. I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard this many times. And so the logic is, if the separation happens too soon that the servants might incorrectly eliminate some of the wheat, mistakenly believing that they're eliminating weeds, and that only by waiting until the very last moment can these plants be distinguished and accurately separated. But that's not what the parable says. 
In fact, the parable tells us plainly that the weeds are visibly distinguishable from the wheat. Their alien presence is obvious to the servants as soon as they begin to blossom. The problem is not mistaken identity. The problem is that the weeds are so intermingled with the wheat that there is no clean way to uproot the weeds by themselves while the wheat is still growing. In fact, this problem is worse than we might realize. Most commentators believe that the weeds Jesus has in mind here are a plant called bearded darnel. And when bearded darnel grows up alongside another plant, its roots entangle themselves with the root of those other plants. So it basically becomes impossible to separate or disentangle bearded darnel from anything it grows next to without killing both plants. And that's the master's concern. To purge the field before the wheat is ripe for harvest will damage the wheat crop simply because the two plants have become so enmeshed and intertangled. And so the master tells the servants, be patient, don't act right away. Instead, let the wheat crop fully mature, side by side next to the weeds. And only after the wheat is fully grown, then other servants, the reapers, will come and they will chop down all the plants. And once the plants are separated from the roots, you can separate them very easily and accurately. There's no more problem because they're no longer intermeshed. After this separation is complete then, the wheat crop can be gathered into the master's barn and the weeds can be gathered and destroyed. And that is the second parable. Now, if you've spent much time in churches over the years, I'm sure that you've heard parts of this parable before, maybe the whole thing. And maybe you think, well, I've got a firm grasp on what this is about. But for a moment, I want you to imagine you've never heard this story before. You're a first century Jew living in Galilee. You've come to see Jesus, maybe because you need a miracle, maybe because you want to see him perform some wonders. Uh, you've heard that he's a great preacher. You come upon this scene and you're astonished because Jesus isn't giving these wise sayings. He's just telling agricultural stories. And what's more, he says that these stories are similar to the kingdom of God. This would seem very confusing to you. You would have heard about the kingdom of God before. The rabbis would have told you about it. They would have said that when the kingdom comes, Rome will be destroyed. Sinners will be condemned. And God's going to give Israel political power again. But now Jesus says the kingdom is like a field full of wheat and weeds. This comparison would not make any sense to you. It would confuse you. And most likely you would stay confused because... While there is an explanation that makes sense of this story, Jesus didn't give it to the crowds. He gave it to the disciples later. But let's jump ahead now and look at that explanation so that we can understand this first parable. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. So Jesus has concluded telling his parables. He retires to the house with his disciples. And verse 36, his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field, and Jesus obliges them. And he starts by identifying a number of the elements in the parable. Verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, son of man is a term that comes from the Old Testament, and Jesus often uses it to refer to himself. So the master in this parable is Jesus. Next we read verse 38, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. There's a lot here. And if we miss what we're going to talk about here in just the next minute or two, we're going to totally misunderstand what this parable is about. So let's start with what Jesus identifies the good seed as corresponding to. Jesus says the seed represents the sons of the kingdom. Now this is very different than in the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, Jesus said the seed represents the word of the kingdom. It represents the gospel. But in this parable, the seed does not represent the gospel. Rather, in this parable, the seed represents those who respond to the gospel with repentant faith. The good seed here represents believers. And these believers have been deployed in the field by Jesus. Meanwhile, we're told that the enemy in this parable represents Satan. Friends, the Bible insists that Satan is real. He is an immensely powerful, created being who hates God. Satan blinds and deceives the masses, and he is roaming about like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. Satan wants to thwart the plan of God and destroy the people of God. And Satan acts surreptitiously and subtly. He creeps around in the darkness doing evil. Now in this parable, Jesus says that Satan's scheme involves using people. People who are loyal to Satan's agenda of opposing the rule of God and rebelling against God's plan. And Satan wants to put his people alongside the people of God, hoping to entangle them. Now, who are these people? Who are Satan's people? Well, thanks to the parable of the sower, we've got a little bit of insight into who these weeds are. In the first place, they're the people who have a hardened heart against the gospel, who reject it outright. Those weeds are immediately distinguishable from the wheat, from the true believers. But other weeds blend in a bit better. We saw last week that there are people who initially appear to belong to God, but who actually do not. They show they don't because at the first sign of trouble, they abandon their faith. Or because they let the cares of this world overwhelm their interest in the gospel. These weeds initially look like wheat, but as they grow up, it becomes increasingly clear that they're different. So, Satan's weeds become entangled with the people of God. But where does this take place? What does the field represent? This is another place where people often get confused. Because the most common interpretation of this parable is that this action takes place in the church. That the field is the church. And so we should expect that the church contains both uh, wheat and weeds, both believers and unbelievers. I've, I've heard that taught many times in the past, and I think I taught it myself that way a few years ago. But the truth is, this parable never claims to be describing what happens in the church. Rather, we're told that this parable re reveals the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is never equated with the church in Matthew's gospel. The kingdom of God is the bursting forth of God's good rule in this evil world. Now to be sure, the church is a part of that. But in the end, the kingdom, the good rule of God, encompasses more than just the church. It will encompass everything in the end. So we should not interpret this parable as saying that the church is always going to have a mixed composition of believers and unbelievers. In fact, Jesus says plainly in verse 38, the field is the world. 
So what Jesus is describing here is not the church. It is the condition of the world as the kingdom dawns and grows. And what Jesus says is that as the kingdom dawns and grows, initially the world is filled with both believers and unbelievers. Now this makes sense of the context of Matthew 13, which is that despite all of Jesus' preaching and all of Jesus' miracles, he has been rejected. And as we read about Jesus' rejection, we might think, this doesn't make any sense. This is the Messiah. When the Messiah shows up, everybody ought to fall on their knees before him, right? Immediately, there should be a judgment of the wicked, and and we should expect to see the righteous being the only people left in the kingdom, right? That's certainly what the Jews would have expected. But what Jesus says is that's actually not how the kingdom of God comes. Initially, the kingdom comes in the midst of a world filled with believers and unbelievers. And Jesus is rejected by those that he has not planted in the field, by those who do not belong to him. And this, too, is part of Satan's scheme. But while the dawning of the kingdom did not trigger an immediate moment of separation and judgment, Jesus is crystal clear that that time of separation is coming. Look at verse 39. He says, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. The New Testament often calls the the times that we live in the last days. The last days began 2,000 years ago with the coming of the Messiah and the dawning of the kingdom. But the end of history has not been sudden. It has progressed gradually over a long period of time. And that will continue up to a point. But eventually the end of history will come, what Matthew here calls the end of the age. And it will come to a definite, sudden end. The world will end with a bang after all. Look at verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The time is coming, Jesus says, when God will intervene in this world in a final, definite way. When God will sweep away utterly everything from the face of the earth. When Jesus will judge the living and the dead. And at that time, Jesus will say the word and his angels will separate the wheat from the weeds. And they will not make any mistakes in their gathering. And they will gather all those who have remained in unrepentance, who, as Paul puts it, have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these impenitent souls will be thrown into what Jesus calls here a fiery furnace. Jesus is calling to mind that frightful scene from Daniel 3. And he is saying the final destruction of the unbelieving will be like that furnace, the final destination. They will be cast into hell. Friends, hell is real. People are going there. Maybe some of us are on the path to hell right now. You need to know nobody taught about hell in the Bible more than Jesus. And Jesus has a lot to say about hell in this book. We'll talk about it more in chapter 25. But what I want you to see right now is that aspect of hell that Jesus emphasizes here. That in hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The tears tell us that hell is a place of anguish and the gnashing teeth speaks of anger. 
Hell will be a place filled with the unrepentant who continue raging in sinful anger against the Lord as they suffer torment for their sins. It is a horrible destiny. This is the tragedy of the ages. This is the natural end of sin, eternal death. But in contrast, Jesus says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now notice, Jesus says the wheat, the believers, are gathered into the barn of their father. Jesus is anticipating that great truth that Paul will reveal, that believers are adopted into the family of God. And the destiny eternally of believers will be blissful and glorious. Jesus points to something from Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. That in the end, those who belong to God shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. There is unending glory and joy that awaits those who repent and follow Jesus. But there is unending misery and shame for those who will not. And Jesus concludes this parable by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, there are three things I hope we hear from this parable. First, we live during the period of time in which the composition of the kingdom is mixed. Our world today is still filled with believers and unbelievers alike. And sometimes this will make us very uncomfortable if we're believers. We'll see persecution. We'll see great sin in our society. And we'll be angry about it. But we've got to remember that this is the plan and purpose of God. That right now, the world must consist of both wheat and weeds. The time is not yet right for the final separation. We must be patient. And that means that we must resist the urge to take matters into our own hands. Often throughout history, people become very zealous and angry about sin that they perceive in the world. And they start to imagine that God's will is for them to rise up and try to impose God's kingdom by force. I've got to tell you, there are many religious leaders and politicians today who are selling that same message. They are promoting the heresy of dominionism. That the kingdom of God is something believers achieve on earth by gaining control of the levers of politics and culture. Friends, that is a lie from the pit. We do not bring in the end of the age. That is the exclusive prerogative of God, which he will bring about in his own good timing. We must not try to force the kingdom on our schedule. Rather, we should long for the appearing of Jesus, and we should redeem wisely the time in which we've been given. Second, I want you to notice that Satan's scheme in this parable involves the excessive entanglement of his people with God's people. We need to remember the truth of 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And that isn't only a commentary on marriage. We need to be careful about excessively entangling ourselves with the things of this world in any area of our lives. Now hear me on this. I'm not saying that we should withdraw from unbelievers and enter some kind of monastic state of isolation. On the contrary. At the end of this book, Jesus says to his, his people, go into the whole world and make disciples of every nation. We're not to withdraw, but we must be wise. Take care how you relate to the world. And if the people that you are closest to in this life are unbelievers, at home or at work or in your social circle, make no mistake, they will influence you. And their influence will not be drawing you closer to Jesus. Rather, we need to entangle ourselves most 
with the people of God. But third, the big takeaway here I think is obvious. As Jesus said back in chapter 7, in the end, there are only two roads. There's a broad road that leads to destruction and a narrow road that leads to life. And that narrow road runs through Jesus only. We must repent and cast ourselves on his mercy and faith. That is the only path to life. Every other path terminates in fire. Friends, Jesus says in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Judgment is coming. Build your life on the rock of Jesus. Turn to him in faith. That's the only way to survive. But we come now to our last point, and here we see two short parables that reveal one more surprising truth, the surprising growth of God's kingdom. We return to Jesus speaking from the boat, and he now gives his third parable, beginning in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Now again, we've got a seed, and we've got a sower, and we've got a field. But now the seed is in focus. And what Jesus emphasizes here is that it's a specific type of seed. It's a mustard seed, which in the ancient Near East was famous for being very small. But although this seed was tiny, the plant it produces is quite large. Verse 32. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Mustard seed can develop a shrub or a tree from 8 to 12 feet in height. That's remarkably tall for something so small. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. And that's his third parable. What's it mean? Well, unfortunately, Jesus does not explain this parable, either here or elsewhere. If he explained it to his disciples, they didn't write it down for us. And this poses a bit of a problem. Because as we said earlier, the crowds got to hear Jesus' parables, but without his explanations, they were left in the dark. They missed the point. And now we encounter a parable without an explanation. Are we left in the dark? I don't think so. Because number one, if we're believers, we have the Holy Spirit. And so we've got spiritual insight that the crowds lacked. But number two, we have the advantage of having the rest of Matthew's gospel and the rest of the Bible to draw on to understand this story. In fact, I think the lack of explanation here shows that Jesus and Matthew think that we should be able to figure this one out without any additional help. So let's take a stab at this. But I want us to realize that whatever interpretation we come up for, with for this parable and for the next one, which is also unexplained, we've got to hold these conclusions humbly and with an open hand. Many fine interpreters have wrestled with these passages through the centuries and understood them differently. And that's because it's very difficult to understand the parables of Jesus when he doesn't just tell us what they mean. But based on what we have, let's look at the mustard seed. It seems clear that the focus of this story is growth. That which is very small becomes very large. And we're told that's how the kingdom works. Well, how? How is that how the kingdom works? Well, remember that first century Jews thought the kingdom would come in its fullness all at once. But as we've seen throughout this book, that's not what happened. The kingdom dawned not in a massive cataclysmic moment. Rather, it dawned through the ministry of Jesus. A carpenter walking through the backwater villages of Galilee, far from Jerusalem, traveling with his small ragtag band of followers. The kingdom started small, but it didn't remain small. 
And in the end, it will be glorious. It will be all-encompassing. It will be cosmic. And yet, what in the end will be so vast was in the beginning that which was so small. Although the kingdom grows and the kingdom changes, it's still the same kingdom centered on the same king. It's still about Jesus. And I think that's what the mustard seed means. Now, I should note that there's a lot of disagreement about the birds that are mentioned in verse 32 who come and shelter under the tree. What are the birds and what is their significance? Many interpreters view these birds as a symbol of evil, and they defend this view by pointing back to the parable of the sower. Because in the sower, Jesus uses the birds to illustrate the action of the evil one. And if they're correct, then the birds here function in the same way as the parable of the weeds. They're telling us that as the kingdom grows, there's still this mixed composition. There's still believers alongside unbelievers. However, after careful reflection, I've got to say I am not convinced that is the correct understanding of the birds. First, because as we've seen, these parables often use the same images again and again, but the meaning of those images seems to change from parable to parable. So in the first parable, the seed was the gospel. In the second parable, it was believers. In the third parable, it's the kingdom. So I don't think we can say the birds are evil again just because they were evil in a prior parable. Second, many commentators think the background to this parable is not the parable of the sower, but rather a messianic prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 17. That's an amazing prophecy. Ezekiel 17, 22. God says he's going to take a sprig, a really small stem from a great tree. And in Ezekiel 17, God says this tree represents the royal family of Israel. And God says, I myself will plant this tiny stem on a high and lofty mountain that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And listen to this. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Every, uh, birds of every sort will nest. I'm the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Now this is a messianic prophecy. A small branch will come from the house of David and grow into a mighty empire. Does this not sound very much like the mustard seed? And if that's the case, then when we say what do the birds represent, we should look to Ezekiel 17. And we see there that God's emphasis in that passage is that every kind of bird will take shade under the tree. And this emphasis on the diversity of birds, I think, points to the truth that in the end, God's kingdom will not only be about the nation of Israel. This is another area where first century Jews' expectations would have been subverted. They thought the coming of God's kingdom was all about them. But no, God does something larger and grander as he draws believing people from every nation into his kingdom. I think that's probably the best explanation for the birds in the third parable. But we come now to the last parable that Jesus tells. Verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now here's a woman with a huge quantity of flour. She's got enough flour here to bake bread for about 100 people. And to it, the woman added leaven, yeast. And what leaven does as it interacts with flour is it permeates the flour and transforms it into a rising yeasty dough. And we're told that's what happens. 
The woman hides some leaven in this huge quantity of flour, and the whole thing is permeated and transformed. And that's the parable. What's it mean? Well, again, Jesus doesn't tell us. And sadly, here we have less data to work with than in the mustard seed. But again, I think the big idea here is growth. What started out as unleavened flour by the end of this has become a large rising dough. But the nature of the growth is different here. The mustard seed is just about physical expansion. But leaven isn't just about physical expansion. Rather, leaven works through the dough, transforming it, making it all leavened. And I think that's the picture here, a permeating, transformative growth. Now, over the years, many interpreters, interpreters here have argued that the leaven is a symbol of evil. And they have a great reason for arguing that, because pretty much everywhere else in the Bible that leaven shows up, it's a symbol for evil. But later in this book, Jesus will warn against false doctrine as leaven. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of sin as leaven. And interpreters who take the leaven here, again, are arguing, that's the same idea here, that, that somehow sin is coming into the kingdom and permeating the kingdom with evil and unbelievers. So it's teaching the same truth as the parable of the weeds. But I think there are a few significant problems with this interpretation. First, while it's true that leaven is almost always a symbol of evil everywhere else, notice that Jesus begins this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. At face value, Jesus is interpreting the imagery of the leaven himself and saying the leaven doesn't point to sin, it points to the kingdom. The interpretations that try to argue leaven represents sin usually try to claim that the true kingdom is represented by the unleavened flour in the parable, which is then corrupted by the leaven. But that's not what Jesus says. He does not say that the kingdom is like the flour. He says that it's like the leaven. Second, if you take the leaven here as a symbol of sin, the picture you wind up with is that God's kingdom expands and grows because of the work of evil. So the yeast makes the dough rise. If the yeast is evil, the growth is evil. And this is a big problem because the expansion and ultimate cosmic state of the kingdom is nowhere seen as an evil thing in the scriptures. It's a great thing. It's the ultimate plan and purpose of God. It's the purpose that's brought about not by evil, but by the purpose of the Father and the death of the Son and the work of the Spirit. Third, and I think this is the biggest problem, if you take the leaven as a symbol of sin, because the leaven permeates the loaf, you also wind up with a picture of God's kingdom being totally usurped and taken over by evil, which cannot be right, because by definition, the kingdom is the good rule of God. It is that which overthrows evil and establishes righteousness. That is the exact opposite of the picture if leaven here speaks of evil. So for these reasons, I don't think leaven speaks of evil in this parable only. Jesus says it represents the kingdom. And I think the idea is this. There's a lot of flour and a little leaven. But as the little leaven enters the flour, what happens? It works its way through all the flour. It transforms it. It grows it. Until in the end, the whole thing is bigger and leavened. This speaks of the transformative growth of the kingdom of God. Jesus' ministry started small, but it has a growing influence, and in the end, all things will be transformed and made new by Jesus. What I want to take from this last point is this, believers. 
Today is a discouraging time for many of us. We may feel increasingly marginalized. We may feel great frustration as we see sin all over our society, but we must not despair because God has a plan. And his plan started very small with just Jesus and his friends. And it suffered many things that would look like fatal setbacks. Jesus died. Terrible persecutions fell upon the church. And yet God's kingdom was not thwarted. It grew. It grew increasing influence. And yes, today things seem bad. But friends, God's kingdom cannot be thwarted. Its growth is organic. The work of Christ will transform and penetrate this world. Slowly in our time and all at once in the end. Friends, God's plan will prevail. God's kingdom will subjugate this wicked world when Jesus returns to conquer it. And if we belong to Christ, we will be secure and dwell in his glory forever. So be encouraged because God wins. So today we've learned about the kingdom of God. It didn't enter with a bang. It started slowly. It started small. It didn't just purge evil from the world right away. But a time is coming, friends, when the kingdom will come in its fullness. This world will end in a bang. It will bring in unending righteousness and glorious renewal to creation. It will bring in bliss for God's people. And it will bring in unending wrath for God's enemies. Today, if you do not know Christ, I implore you to cast yourself on his mercy. God says in Ezekiel 33, turn, turn, why will you die? God has made a way through Jesus' death and resurrection for you to escape the pains of hell. Today, if you do know Jesus, then rejoice. Because the king has come and the kingdom is growing and one day soon it will come in its fullness and we will enjoy life eternal in the presence of Jesus. So he who has ears, let him hear.